want to invite you to participate in kind of transitional liturgy. Right now you're just transitioning from being in another seminar or wherever you just were to being here, and I want you to be able to be fully here. So would you just kind of place both of your hands in front of you, and you can do this prayerfully, eyes open, eyes closed, whatever you are most comfortable with. And kind of, uh, kind of place in, in one of your hands all the wonderful and great things that you've received thus far. Kind of spiritually do that. <clears throat> in one hand and think through that and, in, and enjoy those um, for a second or third time, kind of. And then in your other hand, would you place um, whatever is kind of worrying you, if there is anything, anything that's plaguing you right now, anything that, that is distracting you while you are here. And that hand in which you've placed the, tra the distractions or the worries, would you turn that over and just, just kind of say in your heart, I'm, I'm letting this go for now. Do that in order that you might be here fully. And those great things that you've received that are in your other hand, would you take them and would you put them in your heart too? Just bring your hand to your heart and just say, I'm, I'm keeping those. And so I'm keeping those for now. And then uh, would you hold your empty hands together right in front of you like a cup? And I'm going to invite you to say in just a moment, Lord, I'm ready to receive what you have for me right now. So would you say it? Lord, I'm ready to receive what you have for me right now. So God, we ask that during this time that we spend together, these brief moments, that you'd be glorified that you would winnow out what these people need to hear from you during this conversation and that, that we would draw closer to you during this time. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this is about transition. It's about helping people who are in transition. And so just as a as a short thought, as we're thinking about that, um, the, the theme of our conference is the life of the church for the sake of the world. Now, in my mind, I just kind of complete, conflate those two, and I just have like the church for the life of the world. So that's just where it goes in my mind, because there's this great book written by an Orthodox theologian named Alexander Schmemann, which is called For the Life of the World. And the reason that it's called For the Life of the World is that at the point in the Orthodox liturgy where the items, the bread and the wine are consecrated, it talks about how Christ is poured out for the life of the world. And so what Jesus did is not just for our lives, but for the life of the world. And not just for human life, but for the life of the world. So there's this bigger picture idea for the life of the world. And so when I think about that and when I think about transition, I think about the life of the world. In the life of the world, I'm going to concentrate primarily on human life. And the truth is, our human life is a long state of transition from birth to death. Does that sound depressing at all to anyone? I, I listened, you know, um, Billy, Billy Graham once stated, and I remember seeing, hearing a recording of this, Jesus was the only person born to die. Well, it's not really true because all of us, when we're born, are in this transitional stage from life to death. And there are certain periods of our lives when we feel it a little bit more. I don't know if you're with me on this. Um, my parents are aging. I'm thinking about death more. And I'm thinking not only about theirs, but also about mine. And so there are periods that we feel a little more. We're, we're, we're kind of in this big transition. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It just is. But we also experience kind of mini transitions in our lives where we move from one state to the next. And there's this place in the transition, like Ron is talking about, we've known since last summer and some earlier, that we're going to move to this campus. We're, move, we're, we're like, we gotta pack up our bags and we gotta get going. Um, there was a time period where we weren't allowed to talk about it because of legal ramifications, right? And so we couldn't, and then finally we're able to talk about it. And I'm tired of talking about it. And when I found out that we have another semester for the residential undergrad, I'm like, oh, I'm tired of this. Just, just, just take me. Like sometimes we know that we're in this period of transition and there are great things about it. And there are also not so great things about it. And uh, it's nice when we know that those transitions have an end though. So I look forward to January. 
of 2020 when all my stuff that I need is either going to be in my home or in my Manhattan campus office and I'm going to be able to be fully there because I can only I can't be I'm not really I'm physically where I was but I'm already transitioning and so there's this um, there's this kind of no man's land in the middle when you're moving from one state to the next and so this is just a transition that we are in right now but I'm sure that you have been in transition before at some point in your life. My remote's not working for some weird reason. Hmm. Hang on just a second. All right, so this is my question for you. When you think of the word transition, so what words come to mind? Words, feelings, thoughts. Like when you think transition, what do you think? Loss. Loss. Confusion. Confusion. I'm so tired right now. <laughs> that is just like where I'm at right now. Well, maybe it's because I have a kid, kids that are two and four, that too. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of fatigue in it. Hope. Hope. It's the good stuff. Excitement. Excitement. Yeah, you got it. So there are, there, there are, these, there are these contrary opposites that occur when you're in transition. So I want to talk about a positive transition, at least this is a transition that we generally look at in a positive sense. And it, it kind of starts with this. And you know what's happening there, it's completely recognizable. Mm -hmm. He is saying, will you marry me? And she's receiving a ring on her finger. And she, at this point, both of them, at this point are no longer single people, but they're not yet married people. And they enter this state of transition, which can last differing periods of time. And then they move forward to this other state where, where they have new names, things have changed, and they are now married. Now, we generally look at this particular one, and it's culturally recognizable, as a positive transition. But there are some weird things that happen in the middle of this transition, and um, this is one of them. And if you've never experienced this, you are fortunate. Maybe you've heard tales of these weird rituals when women get together and someone's getting married and one of the games that you play is to dress someone up with toilet paper and it's something that looks like a wedding gown and you judge it. Really, really silly. But I'm looking at this from a female perspective, so this is not the complete male perspective. I think we talk more about the female perspective of this because then there's this. She says, I'm not a bridezilla. Isn't it normal to cuss Cry, scream, cuss, and throw a tantrum. Now shut up and do as I say. <laughs> Transitional time periods are not easy time periods. Now I was looking at two word clouds when I was doing, doing work for this. And there was this one word cloud that um, had the word transition and that had a bunch of words around it. And because of copyright issues, I can't show it to you right now. I would have had to pay five bucks. So um, there was like, and, and if I go just back real quick, I can see this positive transition. There were all of these words, motivation, change, evolution, transformation, new, work, job, bicycle. Yeah, I don't know why bicycle was on there, but it showed up in three different ways. It was bicycle, bike, and I think like bike shop. So, uh, so maybe it was this person's transition. And so it was all about the good that comes for us in transition. But then there was another word cloud that was put out by the, these, um, the, for kids or for students who were coming to a school and they were only going to be there for two years. And they said, you might feel like you're always in transition. And it was, the, it was clear that kids had thought of these words. And in this case, it was a range of opposites. So there was happiness and sadness, those two terms. Thrilling, chaotic. Loss, like you stated, confusion, fear. Transitions don't always feel that good. And we have to realize that they're, whether it's a po even in a positive transition, like we generally look at this as a positive transition, um, there are a range of emotions that both feel positive and also feel negative. So not everything feels that positive. You see, sometimes transition, I think, feels like you're kind of stuck in between two things, feel a little precarious, like you need arms or usable arms, and like you're about to fall down, there's a certain amount of danger, you're, you're, kind of, you're kind of right there. You don't want to fall, but you feel like you could at any moment. So sometimes that's what transition makes us feel like. And not all transitions are positive. Uh, this is just a picture of the kind of transition that we're all going through. 
And so there's that transition from, I like, I love spring green. Like the visual of spring green, it's just like this beautiful, vibrant green color, and then like the deep green of summer. But then while I love the color of fall, I don't really like winter. And so, so this is a movement from great life to dormancy, which will then create new life. So it's a little bit of a different movement. But then <clears throat> this just reminds us of the movement that is, um, it's part of life but it doesn't feel good to those who are watching it and it doesn't feel good. And so, it's, so, so while it is a transition, it tends to be looked at kind of as a negative transition. So how many of you have seen this movie? Terminal? Okay, so several of you have, that's good. The, when we talk about transition and that in-between place, we call it liminality. The, the term that the theorists use is we say, and this was coined by Arnold Van Gennep in his work, work with Rites of Passage. He says, when you're liminal, you're betwixt and between. So you're not what you once were, you're not what you will be, and you're betwixt in between. Uh, and it's likened to a threshold of a door. You haven't really entered the next place and you haven't, in, and while you've even left the previous place. So it's likened to a threshold, but also the border between two countries where you're not really in the new country, but you're, but you're not really in the old country any, anywhere anymore. And if you're familiar with kind of the definitional idea of airports, so this is an airport terminal, that is a betwixt and between place. Uh, it, even though it may be in the United States, it's not U.S. soil. So it's international soil. And so this story, if you haven't seen it, is about this gentleman. Um, it's, it, this, is, this is a 2004 movie. It's older, starring Tom Hanks and Catherine Zeta-Jones. And he's from some country whose name I can't remember. And he comes to JFK, and while he's in the air, there's been a coup in his country. His country is no longer a country, and so he can't enter the United States because he's not coming from a country. They can't recognize his visa because it's no longer a country, but he can't go back to his country because it's no longer a country. So he's stuck in the terminal. And he ends up spending nine months in the terminal, this long period in this terminal. Um, it's a romantic comedy, so you've got Catherine Zeta-Jones and Tom Hanks. So, it's, so like they kind of redeem the actual boredom of this place. Because this transitional liminality is often characterized by boredom. In fact, there are a lot of characteristics of, of this, and there are times of boredom. Sometimes it doesn't last, but there are certainly areas and times where, where this is boring. And I think, it, did someone who's pregnant walk in or did I miss? Yes. You're in a significant transitional time period. And there's all of this stuff going on. So there's all of this stuff happening inside of you that you don't, you don't necessarily have anything to do with except you got to eat, you know, and you got to take care of yourself. But there's all of this stuff that you're not, that you're not necessarily enacting. And, uh, and sometimes it's a little boring. And you know that you know something's happening. So that's that's a liminal transitional time period too. Sometimes it's exciting too. It depends on your perspective. So, um, for those of people who go through a communal transition, one of the theorists, Victor Turner, would state that in this kind of communal transition, something special is formed in the relationship with the people who are going through it. And so he did, this was primarily with work with adolescent rites of passage in traditional cultures, where you have people who are kind of separated from their community and they're together for a certain period of time and they're proving themselves for the adolescent, like they're proving themselves that they're ready to be welcomed as adults in their community now, and then they go back to their community. Um, the understanding is that there, like while they come from a previously stratified group, You've got the, the leaders, um, you've got the haves, you've got the have-nots and, and people in between. Well, it's a previously stratified group because suddenly when you're in this transition, you're all in it together. You're doing the same thing together. You create relationships that will never, that, that are so special because of your mutually shared experience. And what separated you before, the stratification, is no longer something that separates you. So you create, like it's this great opportunity to create an incredible community because then when it's over, you're often re-stratified. So we can see this even, um, we don't do adolescent rites of passage, but, um, but even if you do residential college, 
So you're leaving residential college, it's a, you can liken it to a rite of passage. And some people would say that the friends that you make in college, it's just not the same if you're commuting to college, but if you go away, you go away from your family, you, these friends that you make in college are supposed to last forever because of this communitas that he's talking about. That you form, it's, it's this special and very, and honestly kind of weird place <laughs> where it's an unstratified place, you're all in it together, and um, whereas maybe someone came from the private school and someone came from the public school, it doesn't matter anymore because you're, you're working together. So it's this incredible place where this communitas is formed. Another liminal, two other liminal characteristics, anticipation and frustration, and I'm experiencing that right now. I'm really anticipating great things in Manhattan. I'm really excited about our move. And I think it's great for us and for our future, but I'm really frustrated because it's happening a lot more slowly than I would prefer. And while I want to escape that, it's never good to escape within your transition because you pay for it later, because you haven't really moved forward very well. So I've got to figure out, and this is one of my um, dilemmas right now, is trying to figure out how to process this liminality, figure out how to grieve my losses when we're all experiencing it, but I'm not sure that we have the opportunity to all experience it together. So um, there's anticipation, there's frustration, there's grief because there's, there's loss. But there's joy also because there's gain. There's anxiety. Part of the Bridezilla idea was like there's, there's anxiety about, okay, well, what is next? How is this going to work? Am I doing the right thing? I think a lot of American life is characterized by anxiety, which um, I would love to see us as the church be the anti-anxiety. And yet frequently we buy into that because there's, there's stuff about anxiety in scripture. Like how do we, um, how do we, how do we actually trust God? Because that's the opposite of it. But that's another conversation another time. So within this, this time, specifically in adolescent rites of passage as well as in others, there's a testing and approving of yourself. You gotta do something to show that you're ready for whatever this next stage is. And so you're working on something. Sometimes if it's, a, if it's a rite of passage that's recognized by your community, then whatever you work on is going to be, um, is, is going to be shown. But if it's a personal transition, whatever you work on may be simply individual. So there's a testing and approving of yourself. And then finally, there's more. there are more characteristics. But the characteristic I want to center on for just a moment is vulnerability. Now, I believe that I mentioned, so we're talking about the life of the world, and we're talking about helping people in the world who are in transition. And we're going to talk about how I think ritual can help people in the world who are in transition. And I'm going to tell you a couple of ideas about how um, I think it's good to create ritual and how to do it and, and what, what actually um, some possibilities and things that, that have functioned and I've seen. Um, but the reason that we do that is that when you're in transition, you're really, really vulnerable. Anyone here love to be vulnerable? There's usually at least one person who raises their hand. Anyone really, really hate to be vulnerable? We've got some really hates. Anyone, uh, the rest of you are okay. See, I believe that this group is more honest than the last group. Because like no one said they hated to be vulnerable in the last group. So like some of us enjoy it better than others because, and some of us, for us, we're like if we're vulnerable, we're going to be like a really, really ripe peach that if you touch it, it's going to be bruised and the skin's going to fall off and it's just not, you know, like we think of vulnerability as this, as this not in our society. I think there's a, there's a greater acceptance of vulnerability with, with, with our newer generations. The millennial generation is called the me generation. Their vulnerability might just be self-centeredness. We're not 100% sure. Um, I guess it depends on the day. But um, we shy away from vulnerability because we're afraid we're going to get hurt if we're vulnerable. But when you think about, but when we're in transition, we are vulnerable. And there's a different aspect to vulnerability that I think we need to think about. Because clay itself is vulnerable. It's vulnerable to be molded. It's not going to necessarily be hurt as much as it's ready to be molded. And there is this vulnerability molded by the potter. I mean, we see potter images in scripture that God can do this. And I think we come alongside God with people who are in transition, who are vulnerable, and we help them be formed into, and kind of in essence, remember who they're supposed to be 
and who God has created them to be and help them move forward. So this liminal vulnerability, I believe, is great potentiality. There's a huge amount of potential there. Within any liminal stage, there's a huge amount of potential because the liminal stage and what happens in the liminal stage, what happens in the transition, shapes what the future is going to be. And so when you come alongside and help that be shaped in a positive sense, then that's great. You know, they say, theorists would say, because our, um, our community does not have specific rites of passage, in that absence, rites of passage are created. So rite of passage for most adolescents, sexual intercourse. So certainly for both men and women, it's looked at differently um, for the men and women, but, but I mean, it's coming to the place where it's almost looked at equally, like you become an adult or this is, this is your place of maturity. Gang initiations, that's also offered. If you want to figure out how to move forward and how to prove yourself and how to, how to show this adulthood. So in the absence of, of people offering something that is positive, we make our own. And when we make our own, it's not necessarily a good thing. So, so when people are vulnerable, there is potential, and that potentiality can go really, really good or cannot go very, very good. And, and we must pay attention to that for ourselves, for our children, for our church, for our world. And we generally don't. So my suggestion is that liminal potentiality is activated by ritual, ceremony, or liturgy. And I'm going to prefer the term ritual. Y'all OK with that? So I mean, evangelical Protestants don't always like the term ritual because they think rituals are, are dead and all rituals are dead. But um, if you're part of Missio, you've been with us for a while, you see like ceremony and liturgy being used. And uh, the suggestion is that possibly it's not the ritual itself that's dead or even the words that are dead. Sometimes it's the way that it's done and or the people that are doing it. And so that's what, that's what helps in the power. So Mark Erie wrote a book called Worship That Cares, An Introduction to Pastoral Liturgy. And he, is, he talks about rites of transition. And he talks about sometimes we're uncomfortable with transitional rites for this reason. Like we're used to liturgies where the God story is much, much bigger than the human story. So the, hum the, the liturgy is supposed to tell the God story. It's supposed to tell you about Jesus. It's supposed to tell you about, about the Trinitarian God that we worship. And so when we come together in corporate worship, we tell the God story, but it's really hard to figure out how to fit the human story in there because we do think of it as much, as much bigger. And so he would say that's what corporate worship generally looks like. But we have this opportunity to do pastoral rites or pastoral rituals. And those pastoral rites focus on the human story, not without reference to the God story, but focus on the human story more than they focus on the God story. And so what I mean by that, and you, we have two specific ones, a marriage ritual focuses on the human story more than the God story. The God story is not part of that, but there's a focus on that human story. And uh, so even a funeral, there's a focus on the human story and there is, I feel like in a funeral, there's often a greater focus on the God story because the stories of the departed loved one are often told at other times and not always during the funeral. It kind of depends, depends on your tradition because they're, in a sense, entering the God story. Um, but people who are outside the church do come to the church or to a minister to help them in those transitions, marriage and, and in death. And so my suggestion today is how do we help them in other parts of their human story when they're in, transi in trans transition? That's what I kind of want for us to explore. And so when we have pastoral rights, the pastoral rights focus on the life of the world and focus on the human story and focus on giving life to the world um, within these different transitions. So I want to talk about why ritual is effective to help people in transition. So the, the first, why ritual? We're going to do this visually, primarily because that's my point with this first one. So you see this. You know what it is because you've seen pictures like this before. You see this. You know what it is because you've seen pictures like this before and you know what that stuff means. With this, you know what it is. And with this, you know what it is, right? Because ritual is visual. 
And when all of your senses are in, are interact, like when we when we talk about theories of teaching, it's it's often about getting more senses to interact with whatever your topic is. We talk about active learning. When you see things and you're not just listening to things, it becomes more effective for you and it um, has a greater impact on you. So it's visual. Yeah. That's, that's the next slide. Oh, Stop okay. stealing my thunder, OK? <laughs> Just like, why are you stealing my thunder? <laughs> no, we're going to, so there's a, couple, there's a couple different things. And if there are any others that you're thinking of, it's not this slide, it's the next one. She's obviously prophetic. She is, clearly. She's brilliant. OK, so, so you have this. You know what this is about. You have this. Well, maybe you don't know exactly what this is. This is my PhD robe. It's a really, really awesome robe. I have these two seals of my university. I have the six-sided the six hat, because I was told that the four-sided hat makes your face look a little, bit, a little bit larger. And so I have the six-sided hat. I wear that once a year, and it costs a lot of money. But when I had the right to get that robe, I got a new name. And there are words that are spoken here. He's, he's giving vows to this woman. Because ritual names, it's something that it does. So when you go through, and what's interesting with the Mr. and Mrs., traditionally, the woman receives a new last name. Um, and so in some senses, and again, traditionally, like she goes and she lives with a guy because she's been living under the, and so there's almost a, um, there's more impact, like there's more visual and, and kind of multi-sensual impact to uh, the woman in this case. But, but since I did that, people can call me doctor. And so I receive, I receive this new name, ritual names. And it often doesn't just, and it's not just a new name, it also takes what is only thought and what is only felt and verbalizes it. And so in this case, like, so maybe he's told her what he, what he promises to her. And maybe he hasn't. But in this case, it's new, it's written, it's recorded, and everyone hears it. And so there's a certain amount of, of naming that occurs. And it's taking what, what he's felt on the inside and bringing it out there. So it makes the normally unspoken spoken. It can verbalize the change. It verbalizes the truth of what is now. And everyone gets to know. So it is broadly understood by the people around. These people get new names, mother and father. It's not really ritualized unless you count the pain, but, or the nine months. So, so but, you, but you get new names, and that's very, very significant. You know something has changed when you get a new name, and it becomes clear when everyone talks to you, because they recognize it too. Now, here's your thing. Um, this is a master's. She's receiving a master's. Do you know what they're going to do to her right there? Anyone? They're going to put... What is it? <laughs> they're going to hood her. So there's a hooding ceremony. This was our graduation last year. And so, so basically, like, there's this ritual that is the completion of a master's ceremony. And they put a hood on her. She has this hood. She gets new letters that she can put after her name if she wants to on her business card. And, and here she has this hooding ceremony. And she does this. You walk up. She's facing the audience. She receives this. She walks down. You change where your, where your little tassel is. And you hope that it stays on that side because those are just difficult to wear. The nice thing about the doctoral hat is that it's stuck on. So you don't have to worry about where it is. And so in this case, um, our, our friend already mentioned how active it is. Here's an active thing that, that marriage rituals do. And so father of the bride, right? So he comes up. And he puts her hand in the to-be husband's hand. And um, I do believe that there are patriarchal overtones to that. But we'll just, we'll just leave that. He walks away, but there is this ritual giving. There's a ritual giving away in this case, which is our traditional way of marriage. Because ritual is physical and active. And so it's significant to have this physical and active. You know, I've heard people say that we are spiritual people having a temporary physical existence. But when I read the Bible, I see physicality in our future, and I see physicality as good. So right now, and I, I do think that there's a, there's a temporary break somehow. But right now, I can't break my spirituality and my physicality. And what, what I do in the physical, what I do when, it's, when things are physical and active, it affects me. 
and it affects my spirituality. We're integrated human beings. Our um, socially, intellectually, sexually, spiritually, like it, all of these things, we're, we're all together. And what we do kind of in one realm changes what we do in the other realms. And when we make it encompass more realms, it becomes more effective if we're looking to enact or mark a change. And uh, I remember several years ago, I was just really, really angry. I can't remember why I was angry. And uh, yet I do remember I went on a really fast run because I knew I needed to take whatever was going on inside of me and physicalize it, my new, my new verb, we're gonna physicalize things, and, and have it come out because I'm like, I can't deal with this right now. This physical activity that I'm gonna do is gonna help me deal with my emotions and that's, that's what I need to do. See, ritual is physical and active and for that reason, it can be very powerful in affecting change. So these are the three that we've looked at. Ritual is recognizable to the broader community. So um, I don't mean to like harp on marriage and funerals, but these are just the rituals that we have that are recognizable to the broader community. We are not a very ritualized society. And I think like in my understanding, I'm a very ritual person. Didn't grow up, I grew up very like low church, very, very like no liturgy. No, but I've always needed and wanted that rhythm. It's part of, it's kind of part of who I am. So, uh, but a marriage is recognizable to the broader community. Wearing black and going, going to a funeral is recognizable by the broader community. But if we're talking about, and this is kind of where we're gonna move in just a moment, inventing ritual for differing, for different things that there is no ritual for, you can make things recognizable to your sub-community. So we've made something recognizable to Nyack College, and this is a womanhood ritual that I've been doing for the last nine years, and we're working on, on year number 10, and that's known, and it's known by the entire community, and it's recognized by the, by the entire community, but that's a sub-community. It's not recognized outside of that, which is fine, because that doesn't take away its effectiveness, because it's known by enough people. So Grimes would state that a ritual's repetitive nature lodges it deeply into the bone. And so just using this womanhood ritual that we do, um, it's, a, it's kind of a year-long process. It's a rite of passage. Uh, the idea is that because we've done it every year, there's a culture that's been created, and our culture honors that. And our culture, it becomes part of who we are. So um, to have a ritual that is meaningful is often becomes more meaningful because it's re repeated. And so the repetitive nature of a marriage liturgy and the fact that even those who are kind of low church or, or non-liturgical people will often have their little book and, and read those words reminds us that there's this repetition and this dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to witness. And so there's, there's this repetition that has become part of us. And some of us wanna have that more than others. Uh, and ritual also recognizes and or affects a transformation. So sometimes ritual recognizes something that's already happened. However, it can also affect a transformation. It can also transform. So I've mentioned this womanhood ritual a couple of different times. And uh, a couple of months ago, I was talking to a woman who went through it several years back. And um, she said, Amy, I don't know if I, we ever had this conversation but so it's a year long process. We have this crossing over ceremony at the end. And she said, when we went through that ceremony, Amy, something changed in the air. She said, something changed for me. I knew from that day forward that I was a completely different person. And it's because of that ritual that I am where I am today because it changed me. And so it can and has the possibility of actually affecting a transformation. Ritual also helps us process. It helps us process emotions, physicality, spiritually. There are a lot of um, unprocessed elements in our lives, and so ritual helps us process them. Tom Driver writes this, in spite of many contrary examples, rituals are often and ideally powerful. I think we're aware that not all rituals work. We can admit that. And there are differing reasons why not all rituals work, but rituals can be very, very powerful. And I think we have an opportunity to harness that power for the glory of God and to bring people closer to God through a ritual. 
So this power is not about old stuff. So it's not properly used to install conformity to what is old and entrenched, but to facilitate various kinds of transformation. It's about transformation. It's not about the old thing, even though the words may be old and ancient. It's about transforming people. And uh, the truly ethical kind of transformation is that which results in the increase of agency. Driver would use the term freedom. Just because freedom can have so many different meanings, I wanna use the term agency because that just means you're able to do something that you were unable to do before, and so the ritual gives you this ability. So effective rituals, and this was primarily about rites of passage, um, are spoken of by Ronald Grimes, and he said there are three primary characteristics of effective rituals. The first one is that effective rituals function to draw attention to the passage. So just if we're looking at a womanhood ritual, most of us have not had one. Most of us have not had a manhood ritual. But there are often for us, if we look back in our lives, we can say, oh, when I was 18, this happened and that led me to maturity. Or some, so maybe there's one event. For a lot of us, there's a series of events. But what a ritual does is it, is it kind of harnesses that time and says, this isn't just one event, pay attention, pay attention, something's going on. And, and it harnesses that time and also can create a time to say, okay, pay attention now. Um, because we all have different passages in our lives, we just don't pay attention to all of them. So it draws attention to it. The purpose is transformation. That's why I have a butterfly in the bottom, because when we think about transformation, we think about going from a caterpillar to a butterfly, becoming someone completely new. And finally, effective rituals require much from the community and participants. So an effective ritual for, I mean, this, this, this is possibly effective. Like you say, come, um, we're, gonna, we're gonna name you woman and man tonight. We just want you to come and we're gonna, we're gonna give you those names. Okay, that's great. But if the entire community, like if you've, if you've spent a, time, a long time working on it and trying to figure out what it means to be a man and a woman, if, there's, if there is investment, if, you, if the entire community has mentored you in this process, if there's, if there's a larger investment by the entire community and, a, and a, like, an understanding of the entire community that you are becoming an adult and you have a new thing, a new agency, there's something you couldn't do before, you weren't allowed to, but now that you've gone through this, there's something new for you, then it's gonna be much more effective. And it's gonna affect you in a much broader way. So this is what makes more effective rituals. There are, there are rituals that are somewhat effective, but this is what makes them the most effective. So I'm gonna, hang on just a second, I'm gonna come back to this one. But if you're gonna create rituals, you basically wanna take what I've already been talking about. So you wanna create a ritual that has all of those ideas, it's visual, names, physical and active, all of these things recognizable to the broader community. You are, we've already looked at that. That has the three characteristics of the effective rituals, but does like two more things. The first one, that it keeps and releases the past. Because there is loss and even just letting go of the past is significant. Um, for someone who is getting married to let go of their sing singleness is important because there is a certain amount of loss that goes along with that. So there's the idea of keeping and releasing the past and our mini transition ritual that we did at the beginning of class did that. There's also, it also can bring the participant into the present and the future. So there's a keeping and releasing and then a bringing into the present and to the future. So I wanna talk about, we'll go here. Um, so here's just a list of, pos of losses that happen in people's lives. So we have death and we have a ritual for that. But we don't have a ritual for any of these other losses, at least none that, none that I am um, familiar with. And uh, some people want help during those times and some people don't. And I think individuals have differing needs and I think that's fine. But if I miscarried, I would want to have a ritual for that because I'm a ritual person and I need something that's gonna help me move forward during that loss. Um, but these are other, and so sometimes schools, like for retirement, they have, they have a ritual for that. Um, unemployment is just such a great loss and so many people experience it. How do we help people when they're in this transitional and, and liminal state? Because they're vulnerable to so many different things. But one that I wanna talk about specifically is divorce. So divorce is a specific loss that the church does not sanction, right? But you get married, but it happens. And there's loads of divorced people in our pews 
or chairs or whatever you use. And there are also lots of divorced people in our society, many of whom were married in a church and divorced in a courtroom. So how do we help people reconcile with God and let go of their previous spouse? So uh, several years back, I was officiating a wedding for a friend whom I had known for a long time, and I knew him when he was married, and then they got divorced, and then he was about to marry another close friend of mine. I love them. I'm just so happy they're in my life. Just a quick comment. So, but I really felt like I wasn't doing their premarital counseling. I'd only been married like a year, and we were too close, and so they were getting premarital counseling elsewhere. But, but I really felt like I needed to ensure, I felt like he was holding on to his previous spouse. And I felt like I needed to ensure that he was free when he entered into his marriage that I was about to officiate. And so knowing him, like he's a ritual person, like he's like, this is something that would resonate with him. And so we did a divorce ritual, which we did in the same exact place where he got married and with just a very, very small group of people. And these are the aspects that we did. We started with a rite of reconciliation with God. So there was a confession of sins. It was not just for him, but also for everyone who was there. You've got confession, you've got absolution. But for him specifically, he had the opportunity to confess. Um, I think he did like silently. We didn't say, okay, you have to tell us what you did. Um, but the sins in his marriage. So like whatever he felt, wherever he felt like he failed in his marriage, he had the opportunity to confess that and then to receive absolution, to say, you are forgiven of this. And then kind of connected with that, there was a rite of forgiveness and release. So the word forgive in Greek is aphiemi, and it means to let go. And so we kind of walked him through, okay, you made vows to this person and you had to break them. And for anyone who's a person of integrity, that just feels awful. You're like, but I promised, but I broke them. And, and what kind of failure am I? And what does, how does God look at me? And so we, we helped him achieve forgiveness, but we also said, um, Now's your opportunity to forgive her. And the primary idea of forgiving is you're going to let her go. You're not letting go of your wonderful kids. and You're not letting go of these wonderful times that you had together and all of this. But, but it's time to let her go. And so there's forgiveness and release. He let her go. Out loud. It was just kind of bringing what he wanted to do, I think, into, into verbal like, and, and with people that he loved. And then there was a rite of healing and freedom. So what his purpose at, during this time was to name the good from the marriage. His two great kids. Like when you're trying to let go of a previous marriage, it's really hard when you have such great times together and so many great memories and 18 years for him. So we named the good from the marriage. And then we had oil because oil's awesome and it's Holy Spirit and, um, and we anoint with oil for healing. I mean, that's a biblical thing to do. So we anointed him with oil and we asked for healing in areas of wounds. So ways that he'd been wounded in the marriage, but we also asked for healing of the lies that he believed about himself because it was not very nice. Um, the ending of the marriage was not easy, nor was it good, and he was accused of a lot of things. And so he stated the lies, we stated the truth, he received the truth. Um, it was really, really beautiful. And then we, we together partook in communion because that's really our only hope, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we did together, and that's a ritual for loss. We also have rituals of gain. We have a, um, we have a ceremony or ritual for marriage. We have one for coming to faith if you're, if you're a believer, if you're with believer baptism. Um, graduation, we have a ritual for. Employment, we don't really. How can we celebrate that? Can we help people when they finished this particular transition? Birth, we kind of do, um, but we, ge we generally do not have any ritual with coming into adulthood, but there's been a lot of interest in that lately. So I wanna show you a video, and I hope you can hear it. I'm gonna hold this up. That just gives a little bit of an overview. It's the promo video for the coming into adulthood ritual that I do. <laughs> When does it happen? How do we know we're no longer girls? When I started woman, I still very much considered myself to be a, a girl. Um, the title of woman was just kind of foreign to me and unnatural. I have always known that I'm a woman. I've always been confident in my femininity, but there's been a lot of like, this is what you are, and um, I didn't learn how to define it for myself. Becoming a woman can be confusing and hard to navigate. I was often told that like, couldn't do certain things because I'm a woman or I can't preach because I'm a woman. Now a mother of very young children, 
Um, I was feeling a little bit lost. Some wonder, is it actually good to be a woman? The answer is absolutely. A rite of passage that helps name us woman is seldom experienced. But here at Nyack College, we have woman, an empowering rite of passage that transforms the way we see God, ourselves, others, and creation. Participants become firm in their identity as Christian women and inspired to be their true selves in the world. I realized that I needed to know what a woman was for me. I wanted to be able to say, I'm a woman, and this is what that means for me, and this is what that looks like. Woman creates space to delve into topics like spirituality, femininity, body image, creativity, and sexuality. With the Book of Womanhood as our guide, we prayerfully share our stories, both the highs and the lows. Woman transformed me in terms of my relationship with God. It's been one of the most fulfilling, life-changing periods in my life. Our honesty brings tears, laughter, healing, and lasting bonds with one another on this wonderful journey of womanhood. I just realized that I don't have to hide myself. Woman helped to transform me by helping me find my voice. Woman empowers the feminine voice and instills confidence in each woman's distinctive personality, gifts, and calling. Woman mentors come alongside each participant to process her life and guide her as she prepares for her next season. There was a beautiful mingling of heaven and earth that took place when just a room full of women who passionately love the Lord um, began to rise up and take their place in the kingdom of God. Every woman's transformation is palpable when she presents her project that defines womanhood in the formal crossing over ceremony. This journey requires digging deep into who we are and who we will become as the valuable creative woman God made us to be. That woman is unique with the voice the world needs our program empowers her on her journey and assures her she is not alone. It's time for you to speak out, clarify your identity, and embrace your journey of womanhood. Join us in Woman. So this is a rite of passage that lasts for the senior year for the women that, that choose to be part of it. It has an initiation ritual, a crossing over ceremony, and um, meetings in between where there's a lot of discussion as well as mentoring, as well as creating community within the women that are there. So that's a ritual of gain that we do. We also have general transitions in our lives. And I think about these transitions. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be great if our, if our microcosm of the church or whatever organization we're involved in had something, a way to bless the people while they're moving away? And maybe even a symbolic gift that we gave them. What about promotions is recognized in your job, but what about recognizing it even in the church because the work that you do in the world is Christian work because you're a Christian, whether whatever kind of business it's in or whatever you do. Um, are there, do we have special things for birthdays? I want to kind of land right here with the students and teachers. As I was thinking through this, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if we as the church told people in the public schools when the school is over, hey, if you want to be recognized for what you've done and receive a gift, we just want to we come to our church this Sunday. We want to honor you because you've been working really, really hard and you're transitioning into the summer and we want to, we want to honor that. We now have, like, a lot of churches do blessing of backpacks for kids when they, when they start their new year. But could we make that like a bigger deal so that the kids are honored and that they can feel blessed in that transition and, and that maybe, maybe they receive something there? I, I love the symbolic gift. Uh, to me, that's really, really significant. And I don't know if that resonates with everyone, but that's something that has always resonated with me. And I want to talk about one final transition of sabbatical to teaching. Um, Oh yeah, there's, there's a picture here. No, where's my picture? Hang on. There should be a picture here. Disappeared. I probably deleted it. I probably deleted it inadvertently. Yeah, it's my wine and my candles. So picture wines and wine and candles up here and picture it um, in like three tiers. Okay. So I had a sabbatical this in the spring of 2009 and I had traveled a lot and I was writing my dissertation and um, this, August came and I'm like, I have to go back to work. I don't want to. And I was really, really struggling with trying to figure, like I love my job, but I just really didn't want to work because at the end of the day, no matter how much you love it, it is work. So what I did was I'm like, I need to take whatever's going on inside me and bring it out. So what I did was I made a list because sabbatical had been wonderful and also really challenging, but I made two lists, one list of things that happened or I received or gained during my sabbatical that I was taking with me. And one list of things that happened or I gained during my sabbatical that I was leaving behind because it wasn't going to continue that way. 
And so I, I made one central candle. It was the sabbatical candle. I actually used it throughout the rest of the year as a reminder of the sweetness of my sabbatical. So there's a sabbatical candle and a second tier of candles. And so from the sabbatical to candle, I lit all of those things on the second tier, which were things that I was taking with me. And then there was the lower tier of candles. And that tier of candles was about were the things that I was going to have to leave behind. And I, I just lit and named, lit and named. Everything was written down. It was just lighting and named. I was doing it with just one other person. And then my job next was to blow out the bottom one as a symbolic, I'm leaving this one behind. And friends, when I had to do that symbolic action, I didn't want to, and I started to cry. Because <laughs> I'm like, that's not OK. You know, like there were, there, were, there were great things that I gained. I was glad I was keeping those. But I loved being able to form my own schedule. And I mean, as a professor, I have, I have a very flexible schedule. But you know, on sabbatical, you don't have to be anywhere at any time unless you want to be. And so, so, so that one I had to blow out. And I blew out these. I got to travel to a bunch of different places. I had to blow that out. And then, right after, and then we prayed, and I was ready to go back to school the next day and enjoy it. So like, there was this ritual that helped me in this transition that, made it, that just made it easier. And here's a question that I'm asking that I really just don't know the answer to. Because some of us tend to be in what feels like a liminal stage for a long, long period of time. And here's one that for some people feels transitional. I do think that it's really, really important for the church, and there's been a lot of writing for this, to, to realize that whether you're married or not, you're still an adult. And to not, say, to not try to marry people off that somehow their life is going to get better, because we're fully aware that not all marriages are fantastic. And a lot of them are difficult. So, but for people who do want to get married, it feels very liminal. And the thing is, the truth is, some people never get married. And so, so how do you help people who are in this kind of extended liminal state? And how do you celebrate? This is um, one, of our, one of our speakers yesterday, when he was talking about um, Jesus spitting, and how, how we don't celebrate like that first. He saw trees and he knew that they were trees. How do we celebrate the good things that are happening in a person's life even when there's a desire that they have that is not being fulfilled? And now not everyone has the desire for marriage. And, and I think we also need to celebrate that, especially as Protestants. We're not very good at that. Um, then there's extended unemployment. Some people, and you know them are just unemployed for a long, long period of time. And, it, and you would say, well, it's not necessarily something about them and not something that they can fix. And there's chronic illness. And so my question here is when you have extended liminality, how do we celebrate? And do we celebrate good things that happen in a little sense that are, that are helping you as a human being and not necessarily moving you toward whatever your, your goal is, but, but that you're becoming more human and becoming more Christ-like to be significant. So that's a question that, that I'm still trying to figure out how to explore. Just as a final reminder, then I'm going to invite questions, is just, to, just as a reminder, like we can do ritual that activates liminal potentiality. And so many of us in the church and in the world are in places of liminality, and there's huge potentiality there. How can we use ritual to activate liminal potentiality for the life of the world and the life of the church? Because as we, as we celebrate that human story and move forward with that human story, God does amazing things. So thank you. Do you have any questions or thoughts? Yes. I'm recognizing there is a certain amount of buy-in necessary from the community for ritual to make sense. How do I know when I have that buy-in before I fail publicly at a ritual? That's really interesting. Um, are you a leader or? I am. Right now I'm a children's pastor, so I think okay. about my kids don't have rituals and need them. Right. You probably know better than I do. So if you have any books for me to read, let me know. Um, but also just like, I mean, buying with the kids is one thing, buying with the adults is another. I'm not yeah. sure which is harder. Um, well, okay, so, so like what I've experienced is I'm just like, I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to do it with confidence, and I'm going to do it because I believe God is calling me to do this, and I think God's going to empower it. And there hasn't been a failure. And maybe there is one coming. So once you have kind of that prophetic sense that this is what this community needs in this moment, then you say, this is what we do when you're divorced, and people believe you. Well, I'll see. If you're, so I'm talking about kids. I'm talking about kids. Oh, okay, okay. okay, so in your particular, in your particular place, 
okay, so, so you have this thing. Now you have to have buy-in from parents. If you want to have the most effective ritual, you want to get people to help you. So it's not something you're doing on your own. You want to have a team. Like when I, when I started this, um, this womanhood ritual, I'd written a dissertation on it. So I did a lot of homework, okay, just on rituals in general, rites of passage in general. And then my friends got together, and I never would have done it except they said, Amy, you have to. Because um, I was terrified because this is like, um, this is like, a baby or, or like something like, the, no, this is, this is too close because you might kill me or you might kill my baby and then I'll just be so sad and I'm going to die. You know, like it was, it was very challenging. And, and I still, like it's really weird because in a lot of places I feel like I'm really confident in the place where I should be most confident because I've done the most homework, I, I tend to be less. It's just imposter syndrome. So, um, so, so there is, there's a, there's a certain amount of teaming and some of what we do, so I had an idea of the process that I wanted it to be, but the ideas of how that process was going to go was, was done by not people, all people who worked for Nyack College, but by people who were even outside of that and seeking to understand what this womanhood thing is and how, how do we move forward. And then we just did it in that small group. It wasn't, it wasn't like, okay, there's, there are other, um, we didn't need to get kind of approval from our broader community, but when you're in a church and you're doing something with your kids, and if you want to make it meaningful, you want to, you want to invite the parents and just say, hey, this is what we're doing, and this is the role we want to give you in this. Mm. So, um, so, I mean, it can be, it can be more, more complex. But so, okay, so you have a divorce ritual. Um, not everyone's going to want it. And so you're not going to say, hey, you're divorced, so you need to do this. But how do you know if you want it? Like if you've never seen you it, offer it. And so, so you have okay. to do homework. There's got to be, so Ron had mentioned yesterday that within divorce recovery, which is part of Celebrate Recovery, there are ritual passages. And I, I'm unaware of those, haven't looked at them. So, but you can just do, honestly, you can just do a, a website. You can just do a, a search for divorce ritual and you'll come up with a whole broad variety of things, some of which will be helpful and some of, some of which won't. But you want to sit back and say, okay, well, what do I think needs to happen to empower a divorced person to not necessarily move forward to another marriage, but to empower a divorced person to, um, to let go of the past and be okay with where they are in the present? And so that's what I did with, with what I did. I'm just like, oh, here's some basic things. I think this person needs to know that they're reconciled with God. I think this person needs to feel healed and renounce lies that he has believed because they've just never been true about him, but there are lots of things that we believe about ourselves when events that we never hoped would happen occur in our lives. So, um, so like I came up with some principles. And then, so there was a question that came up in, our, in, the, in the previous session where he's like, so do you tell people this is the way it's gonna be or don't you? But I would say, you do homework. You figure out, hey, what do I wanna do? How is it going to work? And how do I do all of those things that we've talked about? So like you've got these kind of paradigms um, that are there that are like, OK, I want it to be visual. I want it to be active. Um, I want it to pay attention to the passage. I want it to do this. So there are these paradigms that are there that help you make choices. And then uh, just like in, I mean, there are, like if you're going to get married in the Anglican church, it's going to be pretty much done in the same way. But if you're going to get married in the Christian Missionary Alliance church, you've got a whole choice of how it's going to be done. And so, so you can approach someone and say, say, hey, I know your divorce became final just last week. I know this has been really hard for you. Um, is, there, is there a way that we can help you? And here are the things that we can put in a ritual. And you get to choose. Just like in a marriage ritual, you kind of, you kind of get to choose. Hey, how do you want to do this? Do you want to use sand, or do you want to do candles, or do you want to do nothing, or do you want to use some kind of two different kinds of whiskey or sake? Like, I did a sake wedding once, you know. So, so like, there's there's a there's a certain variety that that becomes individualized to to the person who is going through it because they get to have some kind of agency in. Hey, this is what I need, and this is this is how I want this to move forward. Yes. More a semantics question than anything else. Um, in what way does a funeral name, and in what way does a funeral increase agency? Um, that's one of the issues with funerals. Um, while I wouldn't say it's like, what a funeral does in its naming is it names your grief for the whole world to see. Now people know it and they understand it, but there's often like those who are closest to the individual who's passed often have an opportunity to speak about that person. And so that in that, it's not naming the person who's dying, it's naming the grief 
and and it's helping it's helping in that passage and and so th that the agency is a little bit not there but um, so so in that sense it's not a rite of passage because the the funeral is just kind of is is kind of weird so it doesn't fit the way I want it to fit um, and so that is absolutely insightful for you to say hey I'm not sure how this works but the the purpose of that because the thing is you have to do it. It's not, you don't have a funeral because, oh, you know, the world says I gotta have one. It's just what I'm supposed to do. You have a funeral because you want to somehow celebrate this life. And in that sense, so it's not for the person who dies. It's for the, it's for the people who love. And you have this opportunity to celebrate. And then in the agency, the, it doesn't really increase agency except that that ritual helps you move forward a little bit. But what's really interesting about that is that um, in other traditions, so in the Orthodox tradition, not only do you do a funeral, but 40 days after that, you, you, you pray for your, for your dead one and the whole church gets to acknowledge it. And a year after that, you do that. And so there are traditions that recognize the process of grief. And so that doesn't, again, not giving agency to the person who's died, but giving, giving, and it's not, in this sense, it's more like, it's the freedom to grieve, and it's the freedom to say, and okay. Because, okay, so this is not the same thing. But I've talked to students who are just like, oh, she just broke up with me, I'm gonna die. I find that my students don't have as much resilience. We need to teach them resilience. But I'm like, listen, there is, so this sounds really mean, but I'm like, there's therapy on campus, it's free. So all of that stuff that is like contorting in your body, write it down, you're gonna deal with it on therapy Thursday afternoon. So, and then, and then when you deal with it in therapy on Thursday afternoon, you have an outlet for that process. And so, so when you have the opportunity to say, okay, um, I want this person remembered, I'm buying this, this thing um, in remembrance of this person, you have an outlet for your grief. And so while that's not really giving you agency, it's giving you outlet, and that in itself is agency. So not perfect, but related, Thank I guess you. you can say. I gotta head Thank. out, but do you wanna pray for us? Yeah, let me pray for you. All right, let me bless you. I wanna bless you. Almighty and most gracious God, we ask that your ever loving hand would be over these, your people. That in transition or not in transition, they would feel your love for them. That you would guide in whatever ways they are called to use whatever is happening next in their lives. And that you would show your love and faithfulness to them. We pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming.